word of prayer, and we'll get started. Uh, Father, we're grateful for the freedom that we have in this country to worship freely, and we're thankful for the provision that you've made to us, um, not only in the person of Jesus Christ, but also in your written word. And so we just gather today to give ourselves to studying your word, different things your word has revealed. I ask for your hand a blessing upon Sunday school and the main service that follows. I do ask for the illuminating ministry of the Spirit so that we can understand the deeper things of God. And in that vein, Lord, we're just going to pause for a few moments of silence so we can do private business with you, restore broken fellowship if need be, so that we can receive today freely from your Spirit and your book. We're thankful, Lord, for the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which says if we confess our sins, and in Greek that means homo logeo, agree with you that our sin is wrong. Made us a promise that you'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We do recognize, Father, that we are eternally secure and our position never changes, but we can do things as your children that put us out of fellowship with you. And when that happens, there's a, we don't lose our salvation, but there's a obstruction to receiving from your word. So we're thankful, Lord, for the provision you made for us today in that regard. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We lift these things in Jesus' name and God's people said... Amen. Well, good uh, morning, everybody. Hope you're enjoying this uh, global cooling that we're having. I have a fan up here. Fan, I'm defining literally as a wind-blowing thing, not a, yay, we love you kind of fan. Um <laughs> I wasn't asking for that, but um, so we're going to continue on today. If you can open your Bibles to Ezekiel 38, it's uh, a study that we did right at the beginning of the year, and it's entitled The Middle East Meltdown, and it was a verse-by-verse study through Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, and 39, and the study was actually supposed to end uh, about five weeks ago, but I said, if you have any questions, just submit them in written form, and I'll be happy to answer those related to the subject matter that we covered, and the questions just keep pouring in, so a lot of uh, questions people have on this section of Scripture, so I'm sort of you know, reluctant to just move on to something else as long as there's these lingering question marks in people's minds concerning the chapters that we've covered. So here are, Lord willing, five questions that we're going to try to ask and answer this morning in this session. 
And the first one actually relates to the book of Hosea. So you might hold your place in Ezekiel and look at a related book, Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. And so here's a question, uh, and it goes on a few sentences, so bear with me. It says, my question concerns the current anti-Semitism in the world. I've, I've heard other pastors note that in the Old Testament, Satan's plan was to destroy the Jews so as to prevent the, the arrival of the Messiah. Cain killing Abel, the Genesis 6 episode, Pharaoh, Haman, and other examples. However, once, once Jesus was born, Satan's plan was thwarted. So why the continuing war on the Jews? Enter Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, which says, And I will go back to my place until they admit their guilt, and they will seek my face in their misery, and they will earnestly seek me. The question says, It reads on the surface like an escape clause for Satan. Jesus goes to his place, heaven, until they, the Jews, admit their guilt in their misery, i.e. the tribulation period, they will earnestly seek me. So if Satan can destroy every single Jew, then Jesus would, by his own words, have to stay in heaven. And Satan stays on the earth forever. Uh, That would help explain the historic purges against the Jews from people like Stalin and Hitler, and the continuing and future attempts to completely wipe out the Jewish race. It is like Satan's last second Hail Mary pass in football, uh, that last attempt to stay in power. The context is hard to figure out. Some of the text seems to relate to the end times. Other parts of it, not so much. So again, here's the question. How does this Hosea passage indicate a last chance for Satan? And does it explain the hatred for the Jews? And to that question, I can only say amen. And I agree with all of it because it deals with something called the angelic conflict. And if you understand the angelic conflict suddenly the Bible will start making sense to you. Because in passages like Ezekiel 38 and 39, where there is a war against the Jews predicted, that's part of the angelic conflict as well. So let's um, shed a little bit of light on this if we could. All the way back in Genesis 12, verse 3, uh, you'll recall from our verse-by-verse study in Genesis that God made a promise to the patriarch whose name at that time was Abram. And God said to the patriarch Abram, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So at that point in time, God made a sovereign decision to create a nation and to bless the entire world through that nation. And so in hindsight, um, exactly what God said in Genesis 12, verse 3, has materialized. God has blessed the world through the Jewish nation. 
he didn't bless Abraham just for the sake of Abraham. He blessed Abraham so he would be a spiritual blessing to planet Earth. And so here are the three great blessings that God has brought to the world through the Jewish nation. Two blessings past and one blessing yet future. Uh, The first blessing is the scripture. Uh, Romans 3 verse 2 says to them, the Jews, in other words, Israel, was given the oracles of God. So had God not sovereignly worked through the nation of Israel, this book that we're holding in our hands today wouldn't exist. Uh, Every single writer of this book was Jewish. There are no Southern Baptist writers of the Bible or Presbyterian authors, or Methodist authors. They're all Jewish. The only one that's even debated anymore is Luke. A lot of people argue Luke was a Gentile. That's that's the only one even debated. Um, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. But other than that, it's very clear that every single writer of the Bible was Hebrew. So had God not made a decision sovereignly to bless planet Earth through the Jewish people, we wouldn't have a Bible. The second blessing is the Savior, Jesus Christ, who was not a Southern Baptist or a Presbyterian or Methodist or even a member of a Bible church. He was as Jewish as they come. Jesus even said in John 4, verse 22, salvation is of the Jews. That's why in John's gospel, you can see Jesus, I think it's about five times, traveling to Jerusalem to respect the various Jewish feasts, because that's what Jewish people did. And you can also see Matthew in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, painstakingly trace the lineage of Jesus back to David, a thousand years earlier, and then ultimately back to Abraham, two thousand years earlier. So it's very clear if if you read the Bible that Jesus was Jewish. The third blessing that hasn't come yet, the first two have, the third one is yet to come, is the kingdom. The book of Isaiah chapter 2 verses 2 and 3 tells us that the kingdom will not be located in Washington, D.C., the headquarters. Can I get an amen to that? Um, It's going to be headquartered in the city of Jerusalem. So the blessings will flow out to planet Earth in the thousand-year kingdom from the city of Jerusalem. Now, you know, even if theologians don't accept what I've said, and some of them don't, Satan accepts it. And so Satan has had a long-standing plan to obliterate the nation of Israel. Uh, there are seven attempts, by my count, to come against the lineage leading to Christ in the Old Testament, and beginning with number three through seven, coming against the lineage of Christ meant coming against the Jewish nation. Because Satan understands Genesis 12, verse 3, and in his darkened mind, he thinks that he can stop God's prophecies from materializing. And what better way to stop the coming Messiah, the coming Scripture, 
and the coming kingdom, but to wipe out the instrument that God has promised that those blessings will come through. So this becomes the explanation on why Cain murders Abel. Genesis 4, it becomes the explanation on why the sons of God began to cohabitate with human women in Genesis 6. It becomes the explanation as to why Pharaoh persecuted Israel, Exodus 1. It becomes the explanation as to why Athaliah sought to exterminate the royal offspring of Judah, 2 Chronicles 22 and 23. It becomes the explanation as to why Haman persecuted Israel in the book of Esther. It becomes the explanation as to why Antiochus Epiphanes in the intertestamental period tried to destroy the nation of Israel, predicted in Daniel 11. It becomes the explanation as to why Herod persecuted Christ, Matthew chapter 2. We can take this further. It becomes the explanation for the Gog-Magog invasion that we're studying here. And once you understand what God's agenda is to bless the world through Israel and Satan trying to stop that blessing, suddenly almost every single chapter in the Bible, you, you start to understand it in that light and it ties the whole Bible together. So this is what we call the angelic conflict. And uh, when you look at Revelation 12, verses 1 through 5, uh, you might want to just jump over there for a second. We don't have time to go through this whole chapter. But verses 1 through 5 is a description of Satan trying to stop the first coming of Christ by obliterating Israel. Satan, according to Revelation 12, verses 1 through 5, lost that round. Satan is down, but he's not out. So what he does, beginning in Revelation 12, verses 6 through 17, yet future, is he tries to stop God's third blessing from coming to the earth by blotting out Israel, yet future. So his attempt to prevent the first coming of Christ failed. We have the scripture and we have the Savior. But Satan right now is working in history preemptively to eradicate the Jewish nation so that the kingdom, which must come to the world through the Jewish nation, can never materialize. And so that's how you divide Revelation 12. Verses 1 through 5 is what Satan did in Old Testament times to stop blessings 1 and 2 and how he failed. Revelation 12, verses 6 through 17 is what he's going to do yet future to eradicate the Jewish nation. So blessing 3, the kingdom can never come. Satan does not want the kingdom to materialize. The reason he doesn't want the kingdom to materialize is once the kingdom comes, after Jesus returns to the earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation period and rules planet earth for a thousand years, 
Satan well understands the prophecies that during that 1,000-year time period, he will not be ruling planet Earth anymore, but he will be placed in um, solitary confinement, shall we say, a place called the abyss. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3 says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Satan knows that prophecy. He knows it won't happen until the kingdom comes. And he knows that the kingdom is going to come to the earth through the Jewish nation. So he works in history to prevent this from happening. It's um, To understand how Satan works, you have to understand a, a preemptive strike. It's the idea that I'm going to take you out before you take me out. This is how Satan works. And Satan well understands that at the end of that thousand-year kingdom, he will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. You see that described in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And it says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So as one of my friends, Olivier Melnick, likes to say, Satan has read his retirement plan and he's not happy with his retirement plan. So this retirement plan can't happen until the kingdom comes. The kingdom is going to come through Israel, Genesis 12, verse 3. So let's just wipe out Israel prematurely so the kingdom can never come via a preemptive strike. And so the question that I really appreciated, and I hadn't really seen it in light of this angle before, ties this in with Hosea 5, verse 15. In Hosea 5, verse 15, it's it's a prediction where God says, I will go away and return to my place. And what would his place be? It would be the place of the Son of God, at the right hand of the Father, um, a position of glory that he had before the world was. I will go away and return to my place until, and you really have to pay attention to the untils in the Bible. Uh, those are very, very significant. In other words, he's at that place at the Father's right hand following his ascension, until something happens. So I will go away and return to my place until they, who is the they? They is the nation of Israel. Until Israel does something. I will go away and return to my place until they, Israel, acknowledge their guilt and seek their face in their affliction. Now, what's the affliction? I would think the affliction is the seven-year tribulation period. It's during the seven-year tribulation period that the nation of Israel will be converted. 
And once they're converted, Israel will earnestly seek God. And what this prophecy is saying is until that moment in time comes, Jesus will not return to planet Earth in the second advent. He will continually stay in his place at the Father's right hand. So is it fair to interpret Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, eschatologically as I'm doing it? Yeah, I looked this up in Constable's notes, and he quotes a couple of scholars on page 55 of his Hosea notes. One scholar says the language of Hosea 5, verse 15, would appear to reach into the millennium when the Israelites will indeed repent before God and seek his face. Another scholar says, taken with Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, which we're going to look look at in just a second, this passage, Hosea 5, verse 15, gives in broad outline the course of Israel's future restoration to God. So it is completely legitimate to interpret Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, prophetically, uh, eschatologically, in line with the angelic conflict that I tried to articulate a little earlier. So the thing to understand is that Jesus Christ has three offices. Office number one is prophet. He fulfilled that office in his first coming when he functioned as a prophet, calling the nation of Israel back to the Mosaic Covenant. He did that in Matthew 4, verse 17. The nation of Israel turned down that offer. So beginning with the ascension of Jesus Christ, he then moved into office number two, where today he is no longer functioning as high uh, as prophet, excuse me, but he is functioning as high priest after the order of who? Melchizedek. And that really is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. This is a, a role that Jesus has been executing and exercising the moment he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. So of all of these ministries... Ministry number two is the one that's most significant to you as a New Testament Christian. Jesus is relating to you as high priest. Um, The word that theologians use to describe this is the present session of Christ. It's a description of everything Jesus is doing at the Father's right hand. And he's doing a lot of stuff. Uh, He's forgiving sin. In fact, we just prayed that earlier, didn't we? First John 1 verse 9, restoration of broken fellowship. That's a, that's a function that he executes as high priest after the order of Melchizedek at the Father's right hand. Uh, he's building his church. He is sustaining the world. He is uh, gifting the church with spiritual gifts. And there's just an absolute ton of things that he's doing right now. And just because he's not yet in office three, 
reigning as king does not mean he's inactive. He's very, very active. And most Christians in their churches have never heard a single sermon, very sadly, on the present session of Christ. For whatever reason, it's an area of theology, Christology, that we're very ignorant of. We know a lot about what he did at his first coming. And we know a lot about what he's going to do at his second coming, but we know very little about the ministry that he's executing right now in his present session as high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And in office number two, he is not reigning on David's throne. Anybody that tells you that he is reigning on David's throne right now is teaching false doctrine and is intermingling these offices. He is on the Father's throne at the Father's right hand, and he is executing a ministry called his present session where he is functioning as high priest. Now, the day in history will come when he will then move into his third office, which will be king. Prophet, first coming, priest, in between the two advents of Jesus at the Father's right hand. But then the time in history will come where he will actually function as king. He will function in a regal sense. He obviously is not doing that now because who's controlling the earth to a large extent? Satan. Satan hasn't been deposed yet. And so the question then becomes, when is he going to become king and go to David's throne in Jerusalem? See, he's not on David's throne right now because David's throne in Jerusalem doesn't exist. But the day in history will come where he will come back to planet Earth, take his seat on David's throne in Jerusalem, Satan will be thrown into the abyss and the world will enjoy a time of peace and prosperity that it's never known before. We call that the regal uh, function of Jesus Christ, his kingly function. When does office number three start? Well, the Gospel of Matthew tells you, tells you exactly when it's going to start. In Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, these would be the last few verses in the chapter, Jesus says this, after the nation of Israel had rejected him in office one, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. If your eyes are good and can see that, you'll notice that in brackets, when he says gather, it's the verb episunago, where we get the word what? Synagogue, which is a Jewish place of gathering. And what he's saying is, I wanted to come and I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I wanted to do that in my first coming. But the problem wasn't me. The problem was you. You wouldn't receive me. So then he says, verse 38, behold your house. Now, what house would that be? Their temple, which they were treating like a good luck charm. 
Behold, your temple is going to be left desolate. And he's talking there about 40 years later, the Roman soldiers are going to come. They're going to destroy the city and the sanctuary as covenant discipline for the nation rejecting her king. God said this would happen going all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verses 49 and 50. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me. And you'll notice that the verse doesn't stop there with the word me. What's the word after the word me? It's the word until, which I told you a few moments ago, is a very critical word. In other words, I'm going to go back to my father's house at the right hand of my father, I'm going to function as high priest. I'm not going to become king over the earth. I wanted to become king over the earth at my first coming, but Israel wouldn't respond. So I'm leaving now. I'm pursuing another ministry. Your temple is left desolate. It's going to be destroyed. And that's going to be your condition until... And a lot of people read the Bible as if everything from until that word and to the right of the word doesn't exist. And that's a doctrine called replacement theology, that we're in the kingdom now and God is permanently finished with Israel. If I only had the first half of verse 39, I probably would be a replacement theologian. But you'll notice I've got more in verse 39 than the first half of the verse. I've got an until there, and I've got a clause that follows. For I say to you, from now on, you, who's who's the you? It's Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's a generic you speaking to the nation of Israel. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me. He doesn't say you won't see me forever. He says you won't see me until. Until what? Until you, Israel, say... They have to publicly say something. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You'll notice is in quotation marks. That comes from Psalm 118 and verse 26. It's a messianic psalm. And what he is saying is, you will not see me again until you nationally confess me as your Messiah. That, by the way, is why you can't use, as many, many people falsely do, Romans 10, 9 and 10 in your gospel presentation today. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, which says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart... A person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. And everybody today when they share the gospel, they quote that verse. That verse has nothing to do with the gospel in the church age. Romans 9, 10, and 11, as you probably know, deals with who? Israel. Romans 9, Israel in the past, elected. Romans 10, Israel in the present, rejected. Romans 11, Israel in the future accepted. So this 
Romans 10, 9 and 10 is connected to Matthew 23, verse 39b, which is outlining the condition, because it follows the word until. It's outlining the condition that has to be in place before Jesus returns to planet Earth and consequently moves out of office two and moves into office three. Until this condition is satisfied, Jesus stays in heaven at the Father's right hand. He's functioning as priest. Praise God for that. Wonderful ministry. But he's not functioning in his regal, kingly sense. He will not function in his regal, kingly sense until national Israel, at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, calls Jesus back to planet Earth. And don't, don't throw the rapture into this. The rapture is something totally different. The rapture concerns God's program for the church. What I'm trying to describe here is God's program for the nation of Israel. The way Dr. Toussaint in class, I had him for four classes, explained this is, and he was an expert on Matthew's gospel, um, if you're down to your last shekel and you want a good commentary on Matthew's gospel, you buy Dr. Two Saints, Behold the King. You're not going to find anything better on Matthew's gospel than that commentary. The way he explained this in class is, look, you can have the whole world get saved. But if tiny Israel remains in unbelief, the kingdom of God cannot come to planet Earth. The opposite could be true. The whole world could reject Jesus. But if tiny Israel fulfills this condition after the word until, and they believe, Romans 10, 9, and 10, and they confess, Psalm 118, verse 26, then the kingdom of God, just like that, comes to planet Earth. Now, (laughs) your average Christian may not understand this, because it's never explained to them. Your average theologian may not understand this, but I'll tell you someone who does understand this is the devil understands this. The devil in his darkened mind, remember, his reasoning process is corrupted. You see that in Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 17 where as a high-ranking angel, because of pride, he was cast out of heaven. And Ezekiel there, around verse 17, I want to say, talks about how Satan's wisdom was corrupted. He has a darkened reasoning process. Uh, The Bible says the fool says in his heart, there what? There is no God. Paul In Romans 1 says, if you suppress the obvious knowledge of God, your mind becomes darkened. And Satan is no different. Satan thinks he can stop God. I mean, how deluded is that? Uh, It's it's like watching um, some of the old uh, World War II documentaries or histories made of that time period. And you get to the end of World War II and you have Adolf Hitler... Um, starting wars with nations that he couldn't possibly beat. And he was basically being 
try, you know, his own generals were trying to talk him out of it. But Hitler was someone that was deluded. You're not dealing with a rational entity. You're not dealing with someone logical. And Satan is the exact same way. He is so deluded, he thinks he can stop God. And he knows the scripture that the kingdom is going to come to the earth through Israel, and he doesn't want the kingdom to come. Because if the kingdom comes, he knows he's going to be bound for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand-year time period, he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire, and he doesn't want to give up his ground. What is his ground? Well, the Bible very clearly tells us he's the prince of this world, the god of this age, the the prince and power of the air. He's obviously in that position because we as God's people have to put on daily the full armor of God. He roams about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you see all of the scripture verses that we have to document all of these things about Satan's present position. And 1 John chapter 5 verse 19 says the whole world lies within his power. In fact, in Luke 4 verses 5 through 8, he actually offered to Jesus the kingdoms of the world in one of the temptations. And he basically said to Jesus, these kingdoms have been given to me by Adam, in other words, and I can give them to whoever I want. Just worship me for a moment and you could have it all. And Jesus, when he was tempted, didn't say, well, that's not true, Satan. You don't own all the kingdoms of the world because he does. And if you're in that kind of position ruling planet Earth illegitimately, because Adam is the one that gave everything away uh, through original sin, Genesis 3, you don't want to give up your position. You want to see Jesus stay forever in heaven as high priest. You never want to see him become king. And so you set out to wipe out the nation that has to confess Christ before the kingdom can come. Satan in his darkened mind thinks, I'll just kill every single physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll just wipe them all out. And if there's no more Jews left on planet Earth, then I remain in authority over this Earth forever. Which would be a terrible disaster. Uh, That's why John in Revelation 5, when he sees before Jesus enters the picture, no one qualified to open the seven-sealed scroll, which is the title deed to the earth. He sees no one is qualified to open the seven-sealed scroll, and John just starts crying. Why is he crying? And you can read all about it in Revelation 5. He's crying because he sees the world going on and on and on and on and on in this pathetic state where Satan runs everything. The kingdom never comes to the earth. Israel is never converted. And Jesus stays up in heaven as high priest at the Father's right hand. So Satan wants to continue in that vein. And what better way to do it than to destroy the nation or the people that prophetically must confess Christ 
believe and confess Christ in order for the kingdom to come. And once you understand this, all of a sudden, all of these passages in the Bible, like Ezekiel 38 and 39, it makes sense why it's here. And what also starts to make sense are these great movements in human history, like Stalin, for example, Adolf Hitler, for example, who exterminate all of the Jews. Now, I remember as a younger person going to Dachau in Germany in 1989. Uh, This was before the movie Schindler's List came out. Uh, It was basically a basketball college trip where we went into Germany spent some time actually in East Germany, but we actually got to go to Dachau, which was one of the concentration camps where where Jews were just mass exterminated. And how the Nazis would sort of roll the Jews in in these boxcars. And the boxcar door would open and the Nazis would say, okay, run down the hill and go into that shower room over there and you're going to get a fresh shower. So all the Jews would run out of the boxcars, and they would go into these shower rooms, you know, panting and breathing heavily because they had been running. And, of course, you know the end of the story where water would not come out of the nozzle but poisonous gas, and it would suffocate the Jews in a mass sense. And you're actually there standing in the exact venue where this happened. And you're saying to yourself, how could this have ever happened? I mean, how, how could how could such wickedness be manifested on planet Earth? Uh, Olivier Melnick, in his uh, presentations he's done here, talks about how the the Holocaust was different because when some of the Jews escaped and went to different places, the Nazis actually went outside of Germany to bring them back. That is unknown in a Holocaust. Usually when you escape, or a genocide, when you escape, you're done. But the Nazis actually tried to retrieve them to bring them back so they could slaughter them. And so you're standing in, the, in this uh, place where these, this horrible incident happened, and you just say, how in the world could this have happened? How could there be such evil in this world? And when you go to Israel which I do recommend you at some point um, fork out a few extra shekels and take a trip to Israel and Jerusalem. By the way, they just lifted their uh, COVID uh, mandatory requirements, vaccine requirements in Israel, so it's easier to get in and out of there. One of the places they will take you to is a place called um, Yad Vashem, which is basically the Holocaust Memorial. And it's a documentation of everything that happened in the World War II era, names, places, identities, um, documenting that this Holocaust actually took place in the World War II era. And quite frankly, it's one of the smartest things I think the nation of Israel ever did Because today we have Holocaust deniers. 
there are people that basically say the, the Holocaust never happened or if it did happen, it really wasn't that bad in comparison to other Holocausts. A lot of the people that advocate that position recognized that it was worldwide sympathy because of the Holocaust that allowed Israel to return to their homeland 1948. They don't like the Jews in that land, and they recognize that the Holocaust is the worldwide sympathy that gave birth to the modern state of Israel because the world said there's got to be somewhere for these for these people to live since there is a price on their head reaching its zenith with the wicked, evil, diabolical Adolf Hitler. And so it was basically sympathy from the Holocaust that allowed the Jews to return to their land. So if you're in, into a mindset politically where you don't like the Jews in the land and you think the land belongs to somebody else and you recognize that it's the Holocaust that created this worldwide sympathy, you try to rewrite the Holocaust. You try to pretend like it either didn't happen or if it did happen, it really wasn't that bad. That's why a lot of these uh, Middle Eastern dictators, it's kind of interesting when you look at their academic backgrounds. You know, They actually have their master's degrees and Ph.D. dissertations in Holocaust denial. But my point is you walk through those gas chambers, you walk through Yad Vashem, you walk through Dachau, Oh, and by the way, you should know this. The nation of Israel requires all foreign dignitaries to visit Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial, which I think is brilliant. Everyone that comes from a foreign country flies in on a plane that's a leader has to go to Yad Vashem in some form or substance to see that this Holocaust really did happen. So you go through Dachau in Germany, you go through Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, and the, and it's it's such a. Did anybody see Schindler's List? Do you remember the feeling that you had walking out of that movie theater, the sickness in your stomach, like how how in the world could this have happened? That's how you feel in Dachau. That's how you feel in Yad Vashem. Just say to yourself, how could this have happened? And in fact, that's the question everybody asks. How could this have happened? Are we that wicked? And actually, your Bible gives you an answer. It's related to the angelic conflict. It's satanic at its core. Satan understands that if he can wipe out every Jew on planet Earth, then there will be no one left to fulfill Matthew 23, verse 39b. And Satan will continue running planet Earth forever. And Jesus will never return in his regal sense. He will stay forever in heaven at the Father's right hand. So we're we're actually the only people that can give any type of explanation as to why these things happened. Um, Dennis Prager can't explain it. I, I like Dennis Prager. He's one of the smartest intellects I've ever listened to or watched. Um, 
when you ask for his explanation of the Holocaust, he talks about anything and everything other than the angelic conflict. Because Dennis Prager, as, as wonderful a person as he is, is not born spiritually, as far as I can, I can see. He's not coming from the vantage point of the New Testament, which outlines this angelic conflict in Matthew 23 and Revelation 12. And he gives a lot of, uh, you know, without the light of God's word, he gives a lot of wonderful explanations, but he doesn't give the explanation. Because you're a student of this book, you have an explanation for this. You have an explanation why the world hates Israel. You have an explanation why the Gog-Magog invasion is going to happen. You have an explanation as to why in the Gog-Magog invasion, it says in Ezekiel 38, that thoughts will of the invaders against Israel in the last days, thoughts will suddenly enter your mind. It's time for the invasion. Well, who in the world put those thoughts into the mind of these invaders? That's easy to answer if you understand Scripture in light of this uh, invisible angelic conflict. So that's a 45-minute answer to actually a 50-minute answer to question number one. You guys want to do question number two? Well, what choice do you have, right? Question number two is, and there goes my phone, sorry about that. That's the problem of being tied up. You reach for your phone and then all of a sudden you pull over the microphone because you forget you're attached to the microphone. But I'm not complaining, Lord, I've got it very easy. Question number two says, of the explanations I've heard of Ezekiel 38 and 39, your expository teaching of these verses makes the most sense to me. I like this question right there. Of these chapters happening at the start and at the end of the tribulation, does Arnold Fruchtenbaum or other theologians hold to this view? So, as you know, we've kind of labored the fact that our understanding, or at least my understanding, of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a little different. I don't see the two chapters happening concurrently or simultaneously. It's what we call the two-phase view, uh, where Ezekiel 38 is kicked off at the beginning of the tribulation period, with the second seal judgment. And Ezekiel 39, with the conversion of Israel and the birds of prey gorging on the corpses, is flashing forward past all of the judgments to the very, very bitter end of the tribulation period to describe the result of these things. So that's called the two-phase view. And people hear this and they say, I've never heard this from anybody um, who else holds to this? And that's a fair question. When you hold a view um, that's a little out of the ordinary, you might want to ask, well, who else holds to that? You know, to ascertain whether the view is really credible. There is someone that holds to it. In fact, he is the one that I got it from. So the view is not original with me. It's by my professor, uh, Dr. Harold Honer. 
and you'll find it in this book here. Uh, it's a it's a festschrift, German word. Essays in honor of one of the presidents of Dallas Seminary, Donald Campbell. And you can find this online probably. It's entitled Integrity of the Heart, Skillfulness of the Hands, edited by Charles Dyer and Dr. Roy Zook. And in that festschrift, you'll find Honer's treatment of Ezekiel 38 and 39, um, the two-phase view. Now, most people do not hold to this. I hold to it for reasons I've tried to defend. But most people today are putting this war into existence before the tribulation starts. So you'll notice uh, this particular prophecy chart from my friend uh, J.B. Hickson. You'll notice he has a rapture. And then you'll notice after the rapture, there's a time of preparation. After that time of preparation, then the seven-year tribulation period will start. And I like this chart because most of us don't draw our charts this way. We think the rapture happens and the next second the tribulation period starts. And that may be true, it may not be true. His chart allows for a time period in between the rapture and the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. And what a lot of our best people are doing is they're placing the Gog-Magog war post-rapture, pre-70th week of Daniel, in that time of preparation. The names of people that do this are very famous. Tim LaHaye, Chuck Missler, uh, Thomas Ice, Randall Price, Zola Levitt, uh, Tom McCall, uh, Mal Couch, Joel, Joel Rosenberg, Ron Rhodes, uh, a guy who wrote a dissertation on this not long ago at Dallas Seminary, Stanley Mogcon, uh, the guy that sort of discipled Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a guy named David Cooper. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. So, you know, if you want to hold to that particular view, I mean, you'd be in really good company. If you want to hold to the view that I'm advocating, um, you'd be in good company too. Not so much from me, but from the late Dr. Harold Honer. So why is it that I don't follow the herd here? Because these are all my buddies. These are all my friends. Why don't I just get with the program and go ahead and put the Gog-Magog War, post-rapture, pre-70th week of Daniel, in that time period of preparation? The reason that I've had a very difficult time moving to their position is in chapter 39, it describes things that look to me like the end of the tribulation. The birds and beasts feasting on the carnage is not a pre-tribulational event. When you factor in other scriptures, it is a post-tribulational event. Israel's restoration and salvation, which is the end game of all of these things. Chapter 39, verse 22 
and verse 29. As we've seen from the end of Matthew 23, that is not a pre-tribulational event. That is a post-tribulational event. Charles Feinberg points this out. He says, now there is presented the third emphasis of the greatness of the invasion and the subsequent slaughter of the Lord. Incidentally, the figure gives a clue as to the timing of the entire passage. He's speaking here of chapter 39. It is the same scene that a Revelation 19, the great supper of God, and the chronology is clear. The events will transpire at the end of the tribulation just before the millennial reign of Christ. So I'm looking at this and I'm saying I can't put this before the tribulation period starts because chapter 39 has in it information that's at the end of the tribulation. And what is the purpose of this invasion? It's to bring Israel to salvation. Jeremiah 30 Verse 7 says that. Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. Who is Jacob, by the way? Israel. Jacob's name, as we're going to see in the book of Genesis, eventually was changed to Israel. But he, that's Jacob, will be saved from it. The whole reason why Israel is going into this time period is to bring them to salvation. That's the whole point of it. That, by the way, is one of the reasons why you as a member of the church can't be in this time period. Because you're already saved. And you're not Jacob. You're the church. So if the whole point of the tribulation period is to bring Israel to conversion, how in the world can you have this battle taking place before the tribulation period even starts? And how can you have the two chapters happening simultaneously? That would lead to a converted Israel before the tribulation period even begins. And the purpose of the tribulation period is to bring Israel to salvation. So that is another reason why I've just had a very difficult time adopting this this view that it's post-rapture a pre-70th week of Daniel. So what I'm seeing in these chapters is a process. The mistake I think that most people make is they take this as a singular event. That's not what's happening here. It's a process. The process starts in chapter 38 with the second seal judgment. The process ends in chapter 39, with a converted Israel, the birds of prey feasting on the carnage, and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. So what Ezekiel is seeing is here's the beginning of the process, beginning of the tribulation, here's the end of the process. It's giving you the outer brackets of the tribulation. And if you want to learn about Armageddon, the mark of the beast... Antichrist desecrating the temple, all the other cool stuff in eschatology, the destruction of Babylon, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. You don't find it in Ezekiel 38 and 39. 
Ezekiel 38 and 39 are giving you the outer brackets. If you want to understand all the cool stuff in between, you have to consult other areas of Scripture. It's like a, it's like a sandwich. Here's a piece of bread. Here's another piece of bread. Everything in between is your lunch meat, your lettuce, tomatoes, all that good stuff. And Ezekiel is not going to give you the lunch meat. It's not going to give you the cheese. It's not going to give you the onions. It's not going to give whatever you put on your sandwich. It's not going to give you any of that stuff. It's just going to say, here's a piece of bread and here's a piece of bread. Yeah, but I want, I want the lunch meat, Lord. Ezekiel says, well, go study another book. I didn't, God didn't call me to give you the lunch meat. Are you guys following? <clears throat> So Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a process. Chapter 38, beginning of the process. Chapter 39, the end of the process. And that sort of makes sense because chapter 36 is a process, isn't it? For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. You think that happens in a nanosecond? That's a long process that we've only seen the beginning of in our lifetime. The gathering of Israel in unbelief is the beginning of a process, but God ultimately is going to bring it to a conclusion through the giving of the Holy Spirit to national Israel. How about the dry bones? The bones scattered. Who are these bones? They're the whole house of Israel. So the bones start to come together, so they form a human skeleton. Then the sinews and the muscles appear, and it looks like a human being. And then Ezekiel says, you know what? I didn't see any breath or ruah or the Holy Spirit in the body. And God says, prophesy again. And the body started to breathe. And it came to life. So who are these bones? These bones are the First Presbyterian Church of Dallas. No. These bones are the whole house of Israel. So do you see that as a process? We're only seeing the initial phases of the process. So both the content of chapter 36 doesn't happen in a nanosecond. And the content of chapter 37 doesn't happen in a nanosecond. And so if we accept it there, then I look at chapter 38 and 39 saying, hey, there's a process here. Chapter 38, the beginning of the process. Chapter 39, the end of the process. So interpreting these chapters as a process harmonizes with what God is revealing in the context in this section of Scripture. And uh, speaking of a process, it looks like I'm two minutes, three minutes over. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful for these questions. We're grateful for people wrestling with eschatological truths. We thank you that we have a full canon of Scripture where we can do this and the freedom in our country to you know, pursue these things because you want us to know them. Help us to be good stewards of these things uh, this week. Be with us in our study today in the book of Genesis. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Happy intermission.